Richard Flanagan is regarded as the finest Australian novelist of his generation. He won the Booker in 2014 with a sixth novel, The Narrow Road to the Deep North, about the Burma Death Railway. His father was a survivor of that, a prisoner of war captured by the Japanese in World War II. His father, his childhood, his mother are some of the subjects of his latest book, which is a memoir, and a story spun from H.G. Wells to the bombing of Hiroshima to the survival of Flanagan's father and thus his own existence. It's also about his own near death, as I mentioned to Michael Rosen. It's called Question 7, and it's an elaboration of several of the themes of his writing. In fact, I finished it and started reading it all over again. And I asked Richard Flanagan to talk me through the chain reaction. How, if the atomic bomb hadn't been dropped on Hiroshima, he might not be here now? The book was written in the form of a a daisy chain, in the form of a nuclear reaction, because I've for a very long time known that I'm only here chatting with you today and your listeners listening to me today because of that dreadful crime in August 1945 when an atomic bomb, the first ever atomic bomb, was dropped on Hiroshima and um, tens of thousands of innocent people were slaughtered. My father at the time was a slave labourer in an undersea coal mine 80 miles south of Hiroshima and he was at that time near his end and um, he told me uh, many years later that he didn't expect to last much longer and he knew he would perish come the next winter. By that stage he'd been a prisoner of war of the Japanese for nearly four years and although there is historical dispute about it, it it seems to me when you look at all the evidence that it is undeniable without the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and then on Nagasaki, the war against Japan would have dragged out into the following winter. And so because of those terrible crimes, um, my father lived, all those people died, and I reached a point where I wanted to try and understand better why it was that I existed. And... um, why the bomb and you know why did the bomb happen then and why did why was it dropped on japan and that led me back through the history of the bomb and i realized that the story of the bomb doesn't begin with scientific discoveries it actually begins with a novel and before the novel it begins with a kiss in an edwardian drawing room in 1911 in front of a bookcase between the most famous writer in the English Empire at the time, H.G. Wells, who was then 42, and a very young woman who would become very famous in her own right as a writer, who went by the name of Rebecca West, and she was 18 years old. And um, although much is disputed about what happened subsequently, There was no doubt in either Rebecca West's mind or H.G. Wells's mind that there was an extraordinary attraction. And on 
uh, Rebecca Westpart, she wanted love. And Wells was a, a well-known womanizer and a proponent of free love, but he was terrified of this all-consuming love and he fled. He had a complicated love life. He fled to his mistress's home in Switzerland, a chalet in Switzerland, um, and said he wanted no more to do with Rebecca West. And there he wrote a book in his flight from love about the total destruction of the world. And it was one of his famous, what were then called scientific romances, the precursor to science fiction. And in that book, he dreamt of this new weapon of mass destruction, which was founded in the most recent scientific discoveries because Wells had trained as a scientist and was uh, very au fait with the latest discoveries. And he called this weapon, which he very accurately envisaged, the atomic bomb. And it was something that could be the size of a pineapple, drop from planes and destroy whole cities. And the book was uh, something of a catastrophe. It was a, a failure by Wells' standards and it was quickly forgotten. But it captured some minds, principally the idea of this extraordinary destructive weapon. And in 1933, a young Hungarian refugee scientist, a Jewish refugee from Hitler's Nazi Germany called Leo Szilard. I mean, at this point, I was thinking, he's making this up. But all this could be and probably is true. And Leo Szilard is actually in the Oppenheimer movie. That's the well, only reason I know his name. Well, he was a very famous yeah. figure. When he died, he was on the front page of the New York Times, celebrated as one of the great scientists of the 20th century. Um, I mean, the, the, the point of all this is Szilard comes up with the idea of the nuclear chain reaction after reading Wells's book because of Wells's book. And that is the basis of the development of the atomic bomb. And then Szilard understands, because he's read Wells's book, just what the discovery of a chain reaction means and just what the possession of an atomic weapon would mean. And he was terrified of the Nazis getting it. And that led him in 1939 to, with his friend and former teacher, Albert Einstein, to successfully petition uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the President of the United States, to begin an atomic research program that would lead to the Manhattan Project, which would lead to the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. And so, uh, uh, you know, Auden famously wrote in his beautiful elegy for W.B. Yeats that poetry makes nothing happen. And that may be true, but it's also true that a, a novel destroyed Hiroshima and created the world we live in today, where the spectre of the bomb continues to haunt us from the Ukraine and all that that portends possibly for Europe. And it haunts um, the terrible events in Gaza because one of the, the, the great dilemmas of the Middle East is that Israel has the bomb. So these things continue to completely dominate our modern world and everything about it. And so, and it also led to me um, being born 15 years later in a little village in Tasmania and finally becoming a writer and writing the books I did and then writing this book. And all that begins with a kiss in front of a bookcase um, over a century ago. 
I want to talk about your father because he sounds such an interesting character. You describe him almost as if he were a saint, quiet, reserved, for the most part vaporous, there and not there, substance and non-substance, always seeming to be impossibly old. Did he suffer from PTSD? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, firstly, he wasn't saintly, and um, he'd be the first to strongly insist on that point, and I'm sure all my brothers and sisters would agree. But he was a remarkable figure, although a distant one for, for much of my childhood. Yeah, clearly he, he suffered from, you know, what we now call PTSD, what we once had other names for and what we'll have different names for in the future. But it, it, I think it is the shock of having experienced something incommunicable about the human experience, which you then spend the rest of your life searching for words to describe and failing to communicate them. He had a very different outlook on life than, you know, most people I, I grew up with, or, or their parents, I should say. He, he was utterly uninterested in material things, and he was uninterested in achievement. He believed in kindness and goodness, and he, he valued and rated these things very highly. In fact, the, the, the highest of all things, and, and he and my mother. And I mean, the, the point of this book is not that they were extraordinary people, it is that they were highly ordinary people. And they, they had an understanding of the world that people who've been tested by the world, which they had been, they'd both been born into extreme poverty, that the knowledge that they do have, that, that this is ultimately a meaningless universe that we live in. And yet they asserted an idea of love against that meaninglessness. And when I was younger, I thought that was you know, a, a, a sweet idea, but ultimately a, a naive idea. But yet they, they fought for that love and they practised that love and they asserted that illusion year after year, decade after decade in, in the love they showed the people around them. And in the end, that illusion with the passing of time became their hard-won reality. And it was really a form of magic, I think, looking back on it, and they, the magicians. And now something that struck me when I was younger is naive. I, I now realise when I, when I sat down to write about it that the naivety was mine alone. That's life is a phrase that you use at various intervals in this book, just as Kurt Vonnegut said, so it goes in Slaughterhouse-Five. Uh, his book about the bombing of Dresden. And other things chime between you and Vonnegut, Lily Pilgrim, becoming unstuck in time. How influenced were you by Vonnegut? I think Vonnegut's a great writer. I mean, he's, he's a great writer who, even when he's bad, is still far more interesting and compelling than, you know, a lot of the books celebrated as you know, the the classics and the great books. But I think Vonnegut was someone who also had an experience, in his case, the Dresden firebombing, which 
I think they do lead you to become unstuck in time. I, th I think they do remind you that something, something that happens that is strong and powerful can never be isolated in the past. It, it, it happened then and it will happen in the future and it is happening now. And that this for me was that the idea of time I grew up with. In Australia, in my era, we were brought up to believe in this idea of linear time. Well, we still are, you know, that, and the idea of history as we are taught it is a linear idea, a European idea, a, a train that stops at all stations of human development. But the idea of time that was in the stories I heard as a child, and all we had were stories, was circular. And, and the past was always present, the future always possible, and we lived in both. And this is an idea that's very strong in a Australian Indigenous culture. And, and early on in the writing of this book, I was sent this quite extraordinary essay by a young Yolngu woman. Uh, they're a, an Aboriginal people who, who live in northeast Arnhem Land, a quite remarkable culture. And in Yolngu, they have, as well as our three tenses of past, present and future, they have a fourth tense in which something that happened in the past is happening now and will be happening in the future. And this woman, Sienna Stubbs, gives a beautiful example of going to make fish traps on the beach. And when you're making them, simultaneously, you're making them with the people who were making them a thousand years ago and people a thousand years hence are making them. And this struck me at once as both utterly astonishing and entirely familiar. And I, I, I think, um, you know, one of the myths we have in Australia, I think in New Zealand, you're, you're much further advanced with all this than we are. But we still think of ourselves as predominantly culturally European culture, but we're not. You know, we are the issue of the invaders and the invaded. And as much as there was a process of colonisation, there was a process of indigenization. And whether people wish it or not, we are not European in our outlook. We think differently. We feel differently. And so much of this comes from a 65,000-year-old culture that wasn't extinguished on day one of the invasion or ever. There's an idea you say in the book that beneath the surface a different world surges as if a wild river that might drown us. And I want to get to that wild river in a moment. But the whole book is written around that idea, isn't it? That there is something going on and on beneath the surface. Well, I think we all pretend to, um, that life's about the superficial things, but we know buried deep within us, it's about much more fundamental things. The, the title comes from um, a very early Chekhov story in which, you know, when he was a young man, he just wrote these comic sketches to make money as a student. And in one of them, he just does these mental arithmetic questions of the type that you would um, get given at school. And 
he's got a you know a dozen or so of these and question seven is just three sentences and it goes something like um uh, you know, May 31, a train has to leave station A at 3am and arrive at station B at 11pm. Just as it is about to leave, the order comes that it must arrive by 5pm. Who loves longer, a man or a woman? <laughs> now, it's a, it's a joke, but it's a joke that cuts to the heart of us. We pretend life's about train timetables, about working out... Um, simple metrics but it's not it's about who loves longer it's about why do we live how to live who are we where are we going these are the things that ultimately consume us and um, matter to us and we hide from that but it is that that river that flows beneath us that is the real world in which we live and it's that world that i tried to explore in this book by you know paying sort of homage to the world that you know my my very ordinary family came from in both this this island which is australia and not australia at all and um you know the lives and character of my mother and father and grandmother i'm talking to australian writer richard flanagan about his latest book question seven so when you were 21 you died, could have died, might have died, almost died. You were in a kayak, you were guiding a party of rafters down the Franklin River. And you let yourself be caught in a current above a drop. And you became trapped in the kayak, wedged in the rapids. How long for? It was several hours. I think that part of the book is best read and I, I don't like to revisit it other than the way I I wrote about it. So, suffice to say that um, when I tried to recover that memory, it was a very different experience than recovering and exploring the other memories of my childhood and early adulthood in this book. And that was, uh, it was like going down a deep, dark shaft and extricating one or two moments each day from that Did time. you not think about it for a long time afterwards? I don't think about it. Mm. I, I don't think about it, but it is entirely determines everything that I am. What I realised when I brought these memories up was how crystalline and sharp and immediate and vivid they were, these things of which mostly I have no recollection and they were terrifying in their vividness and they were still happening. And I know that one day, I know that ever after has just been a dream and that one day I'll return to down that shaft and I, I never I, I never leave it. I know that's the truth of my life. Goodness. I mean, I'm full of admiration that you've written about it in this way because 
reading it, and I appreciate that you don't want to revisit it in, in, in fragments because here it is presented to us as a whole. But in writing it, I mean, how long did it take you to write this? Did it come as a rush? Did you have to spend a long, long time putting it together? What what happened was I, I had a, an unfortunate um, medical prognosis and I, I had a lot of things I wanted to write and I wasn't sure if I'd have much time to write them. And all seems good now, so all that's done. But at the time of writing this, it, what, that these things weren't so clear to me. And I, um, I mean, I should say that the book is not dark. The book is a joyful book and a hopeful book because that's how I feel. And um, the book is really about the question that I think began to concern so many people towards the end of COVID. And that is, you know, and you see it now and everything from um, the great resignation in the West to the life flat movement in China to um, people leaving the cities to live in the regions, leaving one way of life in search of another and so on. And, but really the question underneath that, the river underneath that is how to live. And, and the book was written in that question, how to live and what is it to live? And I, to write that book and to write all the things I wish to say, I had to write in a short time in a, in a small book. And I went for a lightness. And the book is very lightly written. And I found the more and more I left out um, of the stories, the more and more there was in the book. And in writing that way, I found the words began to levitate off the page. And, and it felt like something magical. And I just went with that magic. And so when you ask how long, uh, I'm not sure. It was a bit over a year to write the whole thing. And it just um, spilled out of me. And once I understood this necessity of lightness and the joy of lightness and the possibilities of lightness and the liberation of lightness, um, everything else came easily and strangely and it was as though it had always been there. When this sounds like a forensic, an unpleasantly forensic question, but at what point in the writing of the book did you realise that your medical prognosis was not as unfortunate as it first appeared? Well, I'm still here talking to you. so I'd Yeah, yeah, but good. I mean, were you halfway <laughs> through when you realised you weren't going to die in the immediate future? I don't want to go into it. It's, it's enough that... I've finished the book and I'm very grateful for that and um, hopefully things will be okay, you know. It's um, it's not clear-cut as medical things never are. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry no, 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 it's it's fine. Right. no, no, no. It, it explains the book was written with an urgency um, and it was written to an end Yep. because of that reason and um, hopefully it ends up meaning absolutely nothing other than that it led to this book. And um, I, no, I don't mind. that there, there are no bad questions, Kim, but there are an awful lot of bad answers. I'm sure <laughs> if this were to be your last book, and please make it not so, it would be a good last book. Well, I feel like it says vast <laughs> things about what you believe and what you've been through. 
Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. We cannot be what we cannot dream is one of the things you say in it. And I just want to ask you how you became what you are, given that you were born with severe hearing loss, wasn't corrected till you were six, you left school at 16 and ended up being a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, which you hated. What were you dreaming and, uh, of? What were you dreaming of? You know, I was dreaming, as I record in the book, I, I only ever wanted to be a writer, which was a, a fairly ludicrous um, ambition um, growing up when I did in Tasmania, where we were brought up to, you know, dig holes and chop things down and art was something that happened elsewhere and we were marginal to Australia which was marginal to the world so there was no model for it. My father's parents, my grandparents were illiterate and I think he he had a strong sense of the, the liberating power of the written word. He once said to me that the written word was the first beautiful thing he ever knew and he saw it as a form of beauty and also as a form of truth and that truth and beauty were one. And I think he saw that those 26 abstract symbols had a magical power about them because you could summon a universe into being and they could liberate you if you had them. But if you didn't have them, they could oppress you as his parents were oppressed by the lack of uh, literacy and I think that sense of the way the written word is magical does get lost when literacy has been in families for generations so I I dreamt of being a writer but I also that the world I grew up in was an extraordinary natural world I grew up in a tiny little mining town in the isolated west coast of Tasmania which was then a, a huge wilderness of you know, primeval rainforest, a, a quite extraordinary and mesmerising world for a child to, to grow up in. And it, I, I guess it was only when I was much, much older, I realised that most people grow up in the, uh, in the world today where a sense of all that's extraordinary is what is man-made. Mm. I, I grew up in a, oddly, for someone in the 20th century, I grew up in a world where the most extraordinary things were not man-made. It doesn't give you a better perspective than others, but it gives you a different perspective and it gives you different dreams. Um, I just want to mention at this point that you are almost single-handedly responsible for saving vast swathes of the forest from a logging company because of an essay that you wrote in 2007, which inspired a businessman, Jeffrey Cousins, to launch a campaign to stop the building of a pulp mill. And your essay um, was copied out and sent out and was the centre of that campaign, was it not? Uh, that, that's very generous, but... Um... Uh, and and it's true, but it would neglect the fact that um, there were countless people who did an enormous amount um, 
to to save those forests. And um, well, we come and, back to the magic of the word in the end. Well, I, I had a part in it, but um, I, I would say, but but in all honesty, it was a small part, and uh, and that's not um, false humility. Brain. All right, and so, not so humble brag. <laughs> Yeah, it, but it was a small part, and it would be a great disservice to to all those people who put everything on the line um, here and elsewhere for, to to save those great natural worlds. Richard Flanagan talking about his book, Question Seven. Really, really good book. Um, and yes, a number of you have said Death of a River Guide, which was his first novel, was entirely based on that experience that he was referring to in the Franklin River. 